You can be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 this morning, verses 33 through 37. And I'm just going to jump right in, reading the passage to you. And when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the idea here just to set the scene, is that the disciples are on their way back to Jesus' primary headquarters, his primary home base of operations, the city of Capernaum. And this is where Peter and James and John and Andrew were all from. And so it's likely that they were on their way to one of these guys' homes, or at least to one of their family homes, the home of an extended member of their family. And so the whole atmosphere here of this passage has to do with hospitality. They're all road-wearied travelers headed back to this place that is not just a house in our text, it is the house. If you'll notice in our text, it's not just a place they're staying, but it's the place. This is, this is where they feel most at home. And so the whole context of this is within this notion of gathering together for a meal, resting in, home, in the home with one another, outside the view of the public eye, and in that context, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Now, we see this argument occur in the Gospels on multiple occasions, and weirdly enough, on at least several of those occasions, this argument about who is the greatest among the disciples takes place within the context of meals takes place within the context of hospitality. The other really well-known instance is that immediately following the Lord's table, the disciples argue about who is the greatest. And I have noticed that pattern before. I just didn't really understand why. Why, why is this pattern there? Why, why, are, why are the disciples seem to be more likely to argue about who's the greatest around supper times, around meals, around hospitality, and I finally cracked the nut, like I finally saw, I was, re- I was doing research on this passage this week and realized something I didn't know before, and that is, is that the rabbinical tradition, Judaism at this particular time, they had like tons of protocols and rules about like basically what we would think of as seating charts. And your proximity to the host or your proximity to the most important person was sort of a signal of your importance. And so there were all sorts of writings about if you sit, it's kind of funny, if you sit here, you're this important. If you sit here, you're this important. And honestly, just that little bit of information brings a whole bunch of other scriptures to mind, which I won't get into right now. But I thought that was really helpful to know. But it's also helpful, uh, it makes me kind of giggle because I, I, I have a suspicion that if this notion of who you're sitting next to was that important, if there was clearly delineated hierarchy, which there appears to be at the dinner table, 
then I can imagine every time these dumb disciples sat down for a meal with Jesus, there was some kind of like New Testament musical chairs thing happening, you know? Have you been around, have you played musical chairs with highly competitive people? That's a full contact sport. People that have really good hip control, they usually win musical chairs because they just, man, they could swipe people out of the way with those hips. Anyway, so that's the context. They're arguing about who is the greatest, and it, it makes sense given what we know now about this, 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 this supper time hierarchy. In fact, there's another instance of this in Matthew 20 where uh, the mother of James and John come to Jesus and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. So this, this, this battle for greatest is kind of, it makes more sense now. But one of the things I want you to see this morning as we celebrate Father's Day, is just something that it's good to remember, and that is that men desire respect. Men desire respect. That's one of the things we can see from this passage. These guys are really concerned about who is the most respectable in their group, how they differentiate from one another, who rises above the other, and so on and so forth. There is a classic book written by a Christian psychologist called Love and Respect, and it's, I think it's basically, you could say, it's a marriage book. And, and he did a sample, the author did a sample of 400 males and 400 females. And this, these were the findings of this, this sample. 74% of those males said that if they were forced to choose, they would prefer feeling alone and unloved rather than feeling disrespected and inadequate. They would prefer to feel alone and unloved rather than feel disrespected and inadequate. And then he collected data on the female example and found a comparable majority would rather feel disrespected and inadequate, and inadequate rather than alone and unloved. Which, actually, I've seen. I've seen both of these very clearly. Men will actually blow up their marriages because they, can, they have a chance to win somebody else's respect outside of their marriage. And women will actually... Women will actually do the same if they feel like this other person outside of my marriage has this sort of offer of genuine love or genuine acceptance. So this seems to hold true to me in my pastoral experience, but of course the Bible has this sort of idea built into it. In, in Ephesians 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul tells children, you know, hey, you need to obey your parents. And he does this because children easily forget how to obey their parents, or that they should obey their parents. And then when he addresses husbands, he tells them to love their wives. Why? Well, because that's the thing they may forget to do. And then when he talks to wives, he tells, he tells them to respect their husbands. Why? Well, because that's the thing they may forget to do. And what's built into that passage is just this idea that men generally run on respect and women generally run on love. Now, the problem with this, this whole thing is, is that we need both. This scenario of, would you, would you <laughs> the psychologist that presents this scenario, have you ever played Would You Rather with a bunch of crude like, teenagers? And it's like, would you rather get your pinky cut off or your pinky toe? You know, these sort of terrible, like, no, I don't want either of those things. Well, the psychologist is presenting a scenario that's like not ideal. Would you rather be loved or respected? Well, we all want, we all want both of those things, right? But there does seem to be, both in sort of general revelation and in the scriptures itself, themselves, there does seem to be this idea 
that men have an, a unique desire to be respected. And I think we see that in these passages where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Now, because this is an ongoing thing, and men really do want to know who is the greatest, there have evolved through sin all sorts of wrong ways up. Um, all sorts of wrong ways up. There are various programs for greatness in the world. And I found something that a Floridian pastor named Ray Fowler wrote to be quite helpful. And he offered four wrong ways up. And I want to walk through those with you this morning. The first wrong way up is up. And this is the path of self-exaltation. The, the, the first way the world tries to get to the top of the mountain is up. This is the path of self-exaltation. Self-exaltation is pride in yourself. For the person whose way up is up, because you believe that the only way to the top of the mountain is to lift yourself up. And so you boast, and you brag, and you draw attention to yourself. Uh, a second wrong way up is over, and this is the path of self-promotion. The second way the world tries to get to the top of the mountain is over, uh, whereas the path of self-exaltation is pride in yourself, the path of self-promotion is pride in comparison to other people. For this person, the way up is over because you believe that the only way to the top of the mountain is to get there over other people. And so you criticize and compare and you talk behind people's backs and the smaller other people seem, the bigger you appear so that you have this nasty habit of cutting down other people to size. The third false way up is the way through, which is the path of self-effort. The third way is the idea that self-effort is also pride, but in this case it's pride in one's accomplishments and abilities. For this person who, goes, who thinks the way up is through, uh, because you, they believe that the only way to get to the top of the mountain is through your own efforts, and so you labor and work and take pride in all you do. The phrase, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, was invented just for you. You don't take charity. Everything you are, you are because of your own labor and work. And the fourth false way up is, is the way up is around. And this is the path of self-preservation. There's a fourth way, Fowler writes, the world tries to get to the top of the mountain. And that is around. And this is the path of self-preservation. The path of self-preservation is also the pride of entitlement. For this person, the way up is around because you believe that the only way to the top of the mountain is to go around all the obstacles in your way, and so you avoid pain and sacrifice at all time. So there are all these false ways up, right? There's the path of self-exaltation. There's the path of self-promotion. There's the path of self-effort. And there's the path of self-preservation. And I wonder if you thought about it, which one of these sinful choices is your default path to greatness? Do you ever get so used to driving in a particular way, like maybe the way to work or whatever, that you're out with someone else and you're going somewhere else entirely and you just kind of accidentally take the exit to go to work or whatever? I do this all the time. It's really good to have kids and wives, my wife, uh, in the car... <laughs> Uh, it, because because they'll say, hey, you're, you know, hey, I, Wes is really good at this because he, he, he anticipates that I'm in autopilot and he'll say, where are you going? He'll just say, where are you going? Like, where are you trying to get to? 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, like not this way. Yeah, okay, we're not going to church today. Yeah, um, man, it's so helpful. Uh, even though this stuff is super simple, it's so helpful to be reminded that we all have sort of default paths to greatness that we turn to. And, and to just have people in our lives know this about us and to know what our defaults are and so on, to, to just sort of check us and say, hey, it seems like right now you're trying to get out of hard things are you taking the path of self-preservation? Or, hey, you're being really critical of everybody else right now. Are you taking the path of self-promotion? And so Jesus does this wonderful thing. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But, but he inserts himself into an argument that the disciples don't want him to be a part of. And, and Jesus says, point blank, like, hey, let's talk about this. Look back, at, look back at our text in verse 33 of Mark 9. And they came to Capernaum. And was he, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For <laughs> on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he, and, he, and, he, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. There are two things to recognize. This is Jesus giving us the right way up, and the right way up is down, of course, which we'll see in a moment, but there are two things to recognize in Jesus's intervention into this argument that they would rather not have him involved in. And the first is this. This is very important. Let's recognize that Jesus respects the desire to be respected. Let's recognize that Jesus respects the desire to be respected. John Piper of this passage writes, what Jesus does here is very profound. He recognizes in his disciples' quest for greatness a good thing that has become ugly and distorted by sin. And instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. Nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significance. So the first thing to recognize here is, is that Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's a shame that you want to be great. He just says, no, you're just, you're just taking a default path that you've inherited through sin, that the world has taught you, and the way up is not that way. The way up is this way. And what is the way up that Jesus gives us? Well, first we recognize that Jesus respects the desire to be respected, but then we recognize that Jesus directs the disciples in the proper way up. He sits them down and he says, if any one would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. You know, uh, there are these weird things that we forget to do. And some people have trouble remembering to drink water, you know, and it's like this odd thing. It's like, you know, you need that to live, right? It's like, why are we forgetting? Do you forget to breathe? You know, know, it's just kind of weird things. Friends, let's just be super careful right now as we talk about this idea that Jesus says here. That we do not check out thinking we understand this. Because practically speaking, I want you to just be humble and honest with yourself. Are you really a servant? Is that really you? Or have you really sold your life out to serving other people? You need to decide, you need to just be open to the fact that this verse keeps showing up over and over and over again on the tongue of Jesus because it is something we are so prone to forget. 
let me ask you a second question. When you do serve, is it, is it in joy or is it in grumbling? Is it, is it in, in eagerness to, to let Jesus commend you in his time and his way? Or do you serve also looking for recognition for the fact that you served? Jesus wants us to be clear. Like He wants us to understand this very clearly. It's okay to want to be respected, men in particular. Here's the way. Serve. Here's the way. And it's not something that we understand once and then walk in for the rest of our lives. It's something we understand on mon- Sunday and forget about on Monday. Like it's, or maybe even Sunday evening. You know, it's one of these things that's just so slippery and hard to hold and hard to process. And it's because our indwelling sin just desperately wants to make us the star of the story, doesn't it? So, yeah, Jesus says something that you probably heard him say before, and guess what? You need to hear it. I need to hear it. I want to think about this in just a, a variety of ways, but, but, but let, me throw this at you. let me throw this at you. There are people whose lives are unnecessarily hard because we are allowing our lives to be unnecessarily easy. That, that's troubling, isn't it? We don't have this, this idea as ingrained into our hearts as we think we do, do we? We know it. We know the way up is down. But man, we need to hear this time and time again. A.W. Tozer says that he goes up, talking about the Christian, he goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he's already down. But when he starts down, he is on his way up. This approach to life is so countercultural, so antithetical, that we must be reminded over and over and over again. And really, for me, Mother's Day and Father's Day are excellent opportunities simply to say over and over and over again, yeah, you're giving away your life in a fairly anonymous pursuit to raise kids who do not understand what you're doing for them. You are blessed. You never made a sacrifice. You're going to spend your life on something, and this is a good thing to spend it on. And so Jesus actually points us in this direction with the preceding verses, he gives us this idea of like, you know, hey, you need to serve. You need to serve. If you want to be great, you must become a servant. And then he knows because this is such a slippery idea for us, he gives us an extremely practical application. And he says, men, you desire respect. I don't condemn that. Let me direct it toward service. And then he says, let me give you a highly practical way to serve. Verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
Well, this, this moment in the disciples' lives is meant to reflect for the disciples on everything else, everybody else. No one else had position like the disciples had, proximity to Jesus like the disciples had. In fact, after Jesus says this, John feels convicted about speaking harshly to someone who had cast out a demon in Jesus' name. John makes the connection and says, this is way more about receiving a child. This is just about our, our, our interaction with people who are uh, generally considered to be less valuable members of society, people who are frustrating, people who feel like they're a time suck, people who are needy, and so on and so forth. And the disciples understand this. But, you know, let's not move past just the most immediate practical application, at least not today, and that is to say that in this one statement, Jesus Christ, God of very God, has made Christian parenting an act of high worship. Let me say this again. Let me read this, this passage to you again. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. With this statement, Jesus Christ has made Christian parenting a holy, high pursuit. He has given us, men, men, he has given us a path to greatness that couldn't be more practical. Receive these children in Jesus' name. Now, I want to just walk through a variety of points based on this sentence. Receive children in Jesus' name. And the first one is this. Being a great dad is a great thing. We're all enticed into various schemes for greatness. We all tend to fall for various wrong ways up. But Jesus said, if you receive a child in my name, that is true greatness. So guys, being a dad is a great thing. It's a great way to spend your life. It's a great investment in your life. Number two, related to this, think about the fact that God is many things. God is many things. He has many amazing things. He has many wonderful attributes. But he is happy to be known as father. Number two, providing and protecting are significant acts of service. Providing and protecting are significant acts of service. The word receive here, when Jesus says, if anyone receives a child in my name, the word received at its root has the idea of receiving a guest. And when we receive a guest, especially in Middle Eastern cultural context, when we receive a guest, we ensure their provision and their protection. So, dads, you're going to spend a big part of your life just putting food on the table and shoes on those feet that won't stop growing. Praise God. And you're going to spend a great deal of your emotional energy thinking about protection and this world that is so overdone in opulence and provision would take that simple act of giving 20 years of your life to put food on the table and say, well, everybody should have food. I mean, that's just, that's just a basic thing. We are in a moment where the, the act of fatherly provision is simply being taken for granted. 
or the government steps in and says, I can do that. But men, you spending your life, take a big chunk of your life, putting food on the table, that is a noble thing. That is a respectable thing. That is a valuable thing. And the same with protection. We live in a world that has this presumption of safety in which men, again, because because the government wants to do provision for everybody and protection for everybody, dads get what? No, men, you spending your life providing for and protecting children, that's a good thing. That's a respectable thing. That's a meaningful thing. And you need to see that as an act of worship because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you're going to wonder why you're doing it. Because guess what? Your kids don't have any concept of what it means to provide and protect. They're, your kids are not going to be a reliable source of gratitude. If you don't believe that your Monday through Friday and even the side hustles or whatever you have to do, if you don't believe that's an act of worship, why would you keep doing it? You're going to look around at people and say, I don't think they understand how hard this is. But Jesus, it's Jesus' respect. It's Jesus' commendation you're desiring. and He sees it. So, Number one, being a great dad is a great thing. Number two, providing and protecting our significant acts of service and worship. But if you think about this word receive in Jesus' name a little bit deeper, you can see not only that Jesus, in saying this, kind of raised the bar, the importance of fathering, but he also gives us some clues about how we're supposed to be Christian fathers. This, this idea of receiving a child in Jesus' name not only says, yeah, parenting is really important, but it also gives us some indication of what Christian parenting looks like and why it would be distinct from other kinds of parenting. And I want to draw your attention to this idea of receiving a child in Jesus' name. It's funny, we've had... Uh, more than a few babies added to our church family this year. And some of the parents had names picked out right away. And when they have names picked out right away, everybody's like, okay, cool. But if you show any, any uncertainty about your name, looking at one couple right now, if you, if you wait too long, you're just setting yourself up for everyone's suggestions. Have you seen that? Like, that's just how it works. Like, like if you come in, you know, first ultrasound, you're like, that's Fred. Everybody's like, okay. But if you're like, I mean, it could be Fred, it could be this, it could be this. Like, everybody else would be like, hey, what about this name? And have you thought about this name? And so on and so forth. And so, you know, you can go either way because both, both routes are fun. I bring that up because if you don't know in whose name you're raising your child, you will get lots of suggestions from the world. So the idea here is, is, is that there, there are these, these potential fault lines that occur that, that really can only be cured by saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to receive that child in Jesus' name. I want to try to think about that for a minute. So one of the options, if you don't receive your child in Jesus' name, is to receive the child in your name, meaning you raise children that will make much of you and that reflect well on you and so forth. You see the difference? 
receive a child in Jesus' name, then that child is about Jesus. That child is for Jesus. But if you receive a child in your name, then what really matters is how that child reflects on you and not Christ. And this is where we find very difficult, sad situations in which parents who did this raised children who were externally successful but spiritually bankrupt because those children reached the expectation. They understood the expectation very early on, and that expectation was this. This was the gospel of that home. So long as you don't make me look bad, you are good. So if you raise a child in your name, and it's all about how that child reflects on you and your abilities and, 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 and your goodness and your provision and so on and so forth, then what you're going to get most likely as a consequence is an externally conforming child with absolutely no heart for the things of the Lord. And it's really easy to fall into that. There's a second way to do that, a second way to screw up, and that is to receive children in their name. What do I mean by that? Well, the one alternative is, is I'm going to make this child live for my approval, live to make me look good, and so on. But there's another way, and that is to, I'm going to receive a child in their name, which means I'm going to live for their approval. And I'm going to make the kids the center of my home. And this is also a mistake. It is a mistake to make your children's moods, interests, whatever, the center of your identity and pursuit. You don't want to do that. When we receive our children in Jesus' name, we see that, yes, they have a high place of honor in our homes and our lives because they represent Jesus in some way. But also we remember that they are not the point and they are not the purpose and they are not our identity because we are servants of Jesus Christ. And what makes them valuable is their association with our Savior, not simply that they're cute little kids. It's, this, it's, it's almost this way, you can imagine how this, this, this falls in practicality, is that the, the helicopter overprotecting, smothering parent who wants everything for their child, well, that child is their God, right? And then on the other instance, you've got the child, the parent who is like, you must worship me, I'm the God, and you must do X, Y, and Z to make me look good and make, make my name great and so on and so forth. These are very common parenting mistakes that all parents fall into from time to time. And the way out of those mistakes, the way to avoid them altogether, you young parents, is to see that child as something that Jesus has given you for the sake of his name. Another, another idea related to this is just that you must remember to lead your children to serve. So if you look at this passage in a certain way, it really looks like Jesus is parenting these disciples. Like he's literally settling a dispute the kids were having in the back of the minivan. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like he's actually doing the thing that if you're a parent, you know that you've done. This, it's, what was the, 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 the arguments that my kids had that really scared me were the ones where they got quiet and they like stopped using me as a referee because I'm like, man, the outcome that this is not going to be good. Someone, someone's really going to get beat up in this outcome if they're going to settle this themselves. So, so in, in a way, you see Jesus parenting these disciples, and he even sits them down. You ever sit them down? Sit, sit the kids down. 
And, and Jesus, has he provided for them? Yes. Has he protected them? Yes. Has he called them time and time again to live for his namesake? Yes. But he does one more thing, and we want to make sure you see this, is, and that's just Jesus teaches his little ones to serve. Right? That's the whole point of this passage. If you can teach your kids one lesson, it would be this. Find your strength and give it to the weak. Find what you have enough of and give the rest to someone else. Serve, serve, serve. And what you're doing is you're actually preparing them for greatness. Isn't that kind of the, the, the other P with the you know, provision, protection that fathers have? Provision, protection, and preparation. And this idea of like, okay, I want to prepare my kid to be the best they can be in the future. But what does Jesus say the best is? To serve. So what should you be doing, men, fathers, as you walk with these children? You need to keep over and over and over again inviting them, calling them, expecting them to serve others. I walked by a group of kids the other day, and someone, a little kid I actually don't know, came up to me and said, they're not sharing. And what was so funny about that was he knew, because he knew like, like that is the universal law. You are a grown-up. You must make this, you must make this right. They're not sharing, you know. Like, I, like, he didn't introduce himself. I have no idea who this kid was. Like, they're not sharing. It's like, I just walked on. <laughs> it's like, get used to it, kid. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, every, in that moment, he understood, like, I just have to say these words and action will be taken because this is, this is the gospel, right? You must share, right? Friends, the challenge as dads is to get our kids used to being last so they can be first. It's a real challenge. It's not an easy thing. It all has to be tilted, though, toward them serving Christ. It all has to be tilted toward them serving Christ, which is really, if you think about it, what Jesus is calling these disciples to do, right? It's all about his name. Paul Tripp writes, your job as a Christian parent is to do everything within your power as an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer who has employed you to woo, encourage, call, and train your children to willingly and joyfully live as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This calling is more important than how they do in school or how positively they contribute to the reputation of your family or how well they set themselves up for a future career or how well they do in sports or the arts or how well they are liked by adults and peers. These things aren't unimportant, but we must not let them rise to the importance of this one thing, discipleship. So, so far, I just, I just really want dads to hear this. Being a dad's a great thing. You're going to spend a big chunk of that dadness serving your kids by providing and protecting. That's a great thing and worthy of respect. It is indeed respectable. You need, like most of us, you need something holding your feet to the fire to actually serve. We all know how selfish we are. We all know how selfish we can be. The Lord, by giving you these children, is giving you an opportunity to die to self. It's a good thing. It's a respectable thing. And most of all, Parenting involves, not Christian parenting involves, 
raising those kiddos, not for our name, not for theirs, but for the name of Jesus Christ. Now I want to talk about just the whole church at large. You look at this passage, you realize that Jesus isn't speaking expressly to parents. Just as he's not speaking specifically only about children, he's not speaking only to parents. There are many, many ways to receive a child in Jesus' name. And as a local church body, as this local church body, I can just tell you point blank, as, as pastor, this is a fundamental priority for our church. A fundamental priority for our church is to make this place a place where children are received in the name of Jesus. I had a little boy ask me this week if I owned the church. And I said, no, I don't own the church. And he said, well, who does? And I said, I guess we all do. And he said, cool, I own a part of the church. And I, I almost told him, like, yeah, you have the shed or something. You know, like, <laughs> like you know that third urinal that always gets stuck? That's yours. <laughs> I hope you recognize how sweet that moment is where a little boy says, cool, I own part of the church. He says, really, really, that's basically success. That's success. That, that, that means that this little kiddo is beginning to feel, the fact that he asked me the question implies that he is beginning to feel a sense of ownership. Years ago, my wife and I had this moment. We shared it. We never really talked about it. We both arrived at the same conclusion at the same time. A little, some little girls, this was years ago, had a sleepover. Some little girls in our church had a sleepover, and then they brought their friends to the church the next morning. And Angela and I were sitting there talking or something, and we overheard our little church girls giving their guests the grand tour of the church. And it was clear that these little girls had a sense of ownership. And a light went off in, our, in Angela and I's heads, and we realized that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. For toddlers to walk into this place, their church, their people, and say, I am with my people, and this is my church, and will be my church, and so on and so forth. And so, friends, not just if you have kids, but just if you're a member of this church, this is a fundamental privilege we have to, to, to welcome these little kiddos into our church and look at them as being sent here, given to us by the Lord Jesus and making sure that they are welcomed and safe. And honestly, like that they're free to be kids in this church because we don't need them to like impress, uh, impress us with your parenting, right? And we also don't need them to be little self-centered monsters either. Like there's a little, there's a middle road. And that is, like, we just want to see that kid to see, I see you, and I see that Jesus has sent you here, and we will honor you and love you as such. So we get the great privilege, not only as parents, but as we get older and our kids are raised, or if you don't have children, we get the great privilege to say that as a church, one of the fundamental things we do when we gather is we obey this verse together. I think we do that two ways. One, just be, by being patient and kind with, our kid, with the kiddos that are here, but also in helping parents remember, hey, you're doing a big thing. The world's telling you you're not. There's a million other paths to greatness, but you're doing a big thing. God's, God is pleased with this. How can I help you? How can I help you? How can I raise your arms one more day to keep doing this, to keep doing what you're doing? We decided not that long ago, I was talking to the advisory deacons and other people, that we're just going to 
stick with the plan we have right now, that what we're doing right now. We're just going to keep our kids in worship for about a year and just see how that goes. This is kind of often referred to as family-integrated worship. And we're just going to do this together. This is how uh, Angela and I raised a few of our kids, just sitting from, from birth up just with us. We're going to have a nursery at Providence that goes up to year four, and then we're going to just ask our kids to sit in here with us. We're going to begin doing a few different things to help parents out as they have their kiddos with them on a Sunday morning service. But I think this verse is a great way to introduce that because it's like, okay, these, are, these kids are a part of our church. We want to honor them and bless them and care for them and so on and so forth. Let me just talk about another element of this passage as I introduce communion. A moment ago, well, early on in the message, I said that these greatness arguments always seem to erupt around meals. But there's another weird similarity to these passages, and that is they always seem to erupt around Jesus expressly saying that he was going to die. I don't know if you happen to notice if you opened your Bible to the passage that we read, but right before, beginning in verse 30, it says this. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So check out the similarity between verse 32 and verse 34. Verse 32, but they did not understand. Jesus says, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised. And it says in verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then in verse 34, Jesus says, what were you arguing about? Because they kept silent for on the way they'd argued about uh, you know, who was the greatest. And friends, let's just be super clear about this. Confusion about the cross leads to confusion about greatness. Clarity about the cross leads to clarity about greatness. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is the end of the argument about greatness. The way has been fully clarified for us. The way up is down. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, and he did it by serving them. He did it by taking the form of a servant. He did it by offering himself on the cross. So as you come for the Lord's table today, if you're a follower of Jesus, ask the Lord for grace to really, really believe, really, really believe that the way up is down and that servanthood is really your life's purpose. Let me pray for us. Father God, I ask that you would let this word soak deep into our hearts and affect our lives. And Lord, I pray especially for our dads today. Thank you, Lord, that they are here. And I pray, God, for the dads that aren't here. Lord, I I thank you that you have given them the common grace to provide, the common grace to work, the common grace to protect. And I pray, God, that you would also give them the special grace allowing them to live for Jesus and to raise their kids for Jesus too. We pray these things believing that you are, you are, uh, you are God, the great Father, and you will make these things so according to your infinite wisdom. Now as we partake of the table, God, let it settle deep in our hearts that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, all debates about greatness have ceased. We must be servants as Christ was a servant. In his name we pray, amen.